Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Hewitt, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Emma Powell, news editor. How are you doing, Emma? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent. We're going to talk about the banks because uh, with the exception of Standard Chartered, they have all now reported. So we can start having a sort of a comparative look at them and, uh, and, ha- and how healthy they are. And Julia, for sure. How are you doing, Julia? I'm good, John. Excellent. And you've written the sex focus this week, which is on sustainability in consumer goods companies. That's right. Which sounds very right on. <laughs> uh, but is it good for profits? And I guess that's the, uh, the big question that you're exploring here. We've got some evidence uh, in the form of results from Reckitt that, uh, that can put some sort of uh, financial meat on that question. That's right. Shall we start with the banks? So RBS, everyone liked these results because the, dividend, the four-year dividend has been paid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're really well capitalised. They kind of have to be. They're overcapitalised. They're overcapitalised um, and they've got permission now to start redistributing that to shareholders, which is good. Um, and they're going to start buying back the government stake, which yeah, is also so, good. Yeah, so I'd imagine there's lots of people who hold these because they... Well, they happened to be holding them when everything went belly up all those years ago. No point selling them. We're starting to see a bit of a recovery here. Is this is this sustainable? Yeah, I guess is the big question. Well, from a capital perspective, obviously they're they're doing a lot better. But the big unknown is Brexit, isn't it? Yes, yes. But what's that going to affect, really? I mean, housing. I mean, the housing side of thing looks strong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's just on the impairment side, really. I mean, actually, RBS have been one of the more cautious banks because I don't know if you remember, but they they made that two hundred million pound uh, Brexit provision um, during the last quarter, uh, which was kind of different from a lot of the other banks. Um, I, I guess, yeah, it literally just depends on whether impairments do start to rise. They're, they're quite benign at the moment, but then interest rates are very low so yeah but there's no sign of them going north anytime soon so well no exactly exactly and and the key thing with the banks i mean a lot of the reason i guess investors hold them is for the dividend and dividends are looking stronger than ever for all the banks really and, yeah and, and, and so are capital levels so and buybacks as well as dividends as well obviously which we saw at lloyd's lloyd's yeah 1.75 billion which i think um the market was kind of expecting 1.2 1.3 so that was a lot better than expected so that i would assume they're overcapitalized as well that they're yeah they're, 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 they're well, give yeah. all this money back in whatever form it's coming back yeah they're, they're ahead of, uh, of their management's target uh for their kind of regulatory capital as well so and their capital generation has always been the strongest of all the banks um so yeah yeah and i mean lawyers as we we've always talked about much more uk focused than than a lot of their peers exactly, yeah I mean, what, what, what are the strengths these results reflect is it, is it i mean where is where is the good where is the good uh, news coming from well, the, the good news mainly is kind of capital generation. They'd be um, actually the big thing that kind of differentiates them between uh, kind of Barclays and RBS, which are also kind of more UK focused, is that their net interest margin actually rose as well. And that's that's really surprising because the mortgage market being as competitive as it is, you know, RBS and kind of Barclays have seen a bit of kind of erosion there, whereas Lloyds haven't. They've managed to kind of hold that margin and actually grow it, which is really surprising and encouraging. Okay, so but the housing market is important to them. Uh, yes, very yeah, important yeah, to them. yeah, yeah. But there's no sign of any weakness there. I mean, we've talked about it on recent podcasts. House builders looking good at the moment. Lots of people still want to buy. Lots of first-time buyers out there. Lots of support in the form of help to buy. So good times roll. Well, yeah. They also uh, you mentioned your rise up here. Uh, there was a slight increase in impairments. But yeah, the numbers just slightly. are kind of tiny. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I mean. They're historically very benign, uh, which is what, I mean, you would kind of expect that at the moment, though, because interest rates are low. 
Yeah, I mean, g- going back to RBS, there's a, there's a phrase that jumped out at me in that result uh, right up, which was geopolitical uncertainty. Presumably that's not just Brexit that you're referring well, no, to. No, that's, that's also kind of, uh, they also talk about trade wars and things like that. I mean, actually, that's probably, I guess, a lot more pertinent to, to HSBC. And I think generally what we've seen so far, even though we've got standard charted yet to report on Tuesday, I think it's fair to say there's a split between the kind of UK focused and the Asia focused banks. Yeah, so HSBC results were generally perceived as quite disappointing. Yeah, they were disappointing. I think the shares fell around 4% on the day which is kind of contrasting with the other, those other three banks that have reported. And it's generally because um, they've got quite a balancing act, actually, at the moment between they're trying to expand across China and, and the rest of Asia, but they're also, uh, you know, trying to keep costs down. And that's, um, you know, a really fine balancing act for them. Obviously, they want to take advantage of what they see as the market opportunity there. But, you know, investors are obviously very wary of, of costs keep rising. And that's, you know, um, without kind of mentioning the fact that their markets business uh, didn't do very well for the obvious reason during the fourth quarter, um, you know, a bit of a weakness in in. Uh, confidence yeah, in, so, in, in, in Asia. So, so, so you talk about something called the JAWS. Oh, the JAWS. Yeah, the JAWS. yeah, yeah that's this, a bit of HSBC term. And this is the differential between revenue revenues. growth and cost growth. And you, you want to see like a positive. So basically revenue growing faster than costs. They incurred, I think it's 1.2% negative. So cost rising more than revenue, which obviously isn't good. Did they talk about the sort of general concerns around China in, in their update? I mean, we wrote about about it in quite some depth yeah, last exactly. week. Um, no, so so I know obviously we wrote about China a lot in terms of the debt. They actually didn't really mention that, funnily enough, uh, even though they'd be massively exposed to that. I would have thought that's the kind of key thing for them to be of, talking of, about. Of course it is, but I get I mean, my guess would be is because it's the bigger known, like will all these loans turn toxic? We don't know yet. So they just kind of talk about 2019 also likely to be very challenging for them. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, presumably, I mean, the, the, the debt we were talking about in China, it's not all bank debt with, with yeah, banks yeah, like HSBC. Yeah, exactly. A lot of it is yeah. in the shadow yeah. banking system or whatever yeah. it may be. Um, HSBC, HSBC presumably has, has uh, I must talk about the sort of uh, quality of its lending in China. Yeah, exactly. And again, there wasn't a big rise in impairments or anything. So that's, that's key. I guess it's like whether that will unravel further down the road. Mm. They also uh, have a big UK operation, of course, uh, yeah. which looks which look pretty decent, um, in fact. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's actually it's a much smaller part of, of their business. I mean, they do actually um, they did warn a little bit on ter- in terms of uh, credit quality, uh, but I think that's more for kind of this year rather than them actually seeing uh, you know a big rise in kind of impairments or anything yet. Mm. And uh, they mentioned, or you mentioned in your write-up, that uh, mortgage lending is growing over here still. So, again, yeah, supportive exactly. of the idea that the housing market yeah, yeah, yeah. It remains yeah. relatively strong. Um, let's talk about Barclays, which isn't in the magazine, but uh, you've written that up today. Yeah. This is interesting, too, because there is a kind of big... I mean, we talk about HSBC in the context of it's, you know, it's, it's essentially two banks in one, China and the UK. Uh, Barclays is kind of the same, um, and there's a little bit more pressure to do something about this, which, which you've talked about in your piece. Yeah, exactly. So the kind of big story around Barclays at the moment has been Edward Brampson, uh, who's an activist investor. He's been kind of agitating for Barclays to drop their investment bank. He thinks they should just focus on kind of lower risk retail banking. Um, he's also been pushing to get a seat on the board. He hasn't succeeded yes, uh, yet. 
Um, but these, these results actually, again, uh, kind of well received by the market. And you, you can see why, because actually the investment bank outperformed its peers. So they're kind of investment banking peers in the US and in Europe. Um, you know, there was a bit of decline in terms of fixed income trading and things like that. But it wasn't as wor- it wasn't as bad as uh, their peers have seen. And actually, crucially, uh, which is kind of the biggest thing people look for, its returns on uh, tangible equity increased quite a lot. I mean, it's still inferior to the to the retail banking side of things, which you know will will attract criticism. But returns have improved there a lot. So I don't know whether this is a bit of a riposte to Edward Edward Brampson, you know. My understanding of investment banking is that it's it's much more lumpy, I guess. Yeah. So you know, they're, and they're, high risk. And high risk. So there are the opportunities for big ups and downs, you know, big gains, but also big losses. Yeah. Um, which I guess is uh, Edward Brampson's argument. Um, but that's being very very strongly resisted by by the management at at Barclays at the moment. I mean, yeah. why 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 is this? I mean, this battle seems to be going on for as long as I can remember. A long time, yeah. And obviously, Jess Daly has, who's the chief executive, has a history in investment banking. So that's obviously got to play a part. And they've just been very committed, like you say, um, to the fact that, yeah, there are these highs and lows, but the potential upside, you know, could be great. Then I guess the the, the kind of takeaway, the, the kind of negative, though, on that side is that you have to, because it's so high risk, park a lot of tangible equity against your investment banking operations. That means you can't you know, you can't uh, grow the other side of the business as much. So if you've got poor returns, but you're, you know, obviously parking a lot of equity against that side of the business, you can see, you know, why people might get annoyed if if your returns are quite low. I guess the idea being that they could just do better by, by putting all their capital behind part of the business. Put it, put it, put it, put, yeah, put it to better use on the retail side of things. Uh, I mean, we talked about RBS and uh, Lloyd's looking very strong in that in that sort of uh, capital uh, adequacy ratio measure. How does Barclays look by comparison? Does so it- it's yeah, it's a kind of its capital ratio. I think was around thirteen point two percent. A little uh, bit lower then. It's a bit lower, but it's still um, it's still. Uh, just slightly ahead of management's target um, and obviously they've reinstated their dividend now to 6.5p which is what analysts were hoping for um, the, the key thing with them was they had this settlement with the Department of Justice in the US over um, residential mortgage-backed securities um, the mis-selling of them historically uh, so, but they've settled that which is why basically they could reinstate the dividend. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd's also, I mean, going back to kind of provisions for mis-selling, Lloyd's, those numbers seem to be uh, shrinking with every every passing. Yeah, PPI uh, is a big one for them. Um, but, but getting smaller, the banks, they look a lot cleaner. And I guess, I guess uh, the key takeaway from all of the banking results so far is that they look much stronger than they, they have done for a while and, and a lot cleaner and and a lot more attractive. Do yeah. we Do we think they're worth buying now? I mean, for obvious reasons, the share, the valuations are depressed. So HSBC and Standard Chartered, that's because of the kind of trade wars in the UK. You know, unsurprisingly right now, financial services companies generally, but banks in particular, their shares are depressed. Um, I would say really, especially with Lloyd's, if you look at how well capitalised they are, the strength of the capital generation, I definitely think they're worth buying. Decent dividends, uh, I mean, in terms of the yield as well. So, exactly. I mean, as long as they can keep paying out those dividends and they stay well capitalised, I think at their current valuations, they are worth buying. So you've got Lloyd's on a buy, Barclays on a buy, yeah. HSBC on a buy. 
buy. It's maintained the dividend. Seems a bit riskier, but uh... it's, it's, risk, it's risky. But it's like I think it yields around six percent. They've they've they last cut the dividend in two thousand and nine. Yes, absolutely. so it's been. It's yeah, being maintained steady, but yeah, of course, it's like a higher risk income stock. And RBS is the only RBS one you've got on a hold. hold. Yeah, not convinced yet. Then no, Wait not, not quite yet. All right, so uh, yeah, lots of lots of uh, I, I guess lots of I mean, bank reports are, are massive. Uh, so if you want to go away and read them yourself, you can. You've got a spare week or two, then uh, oh, yeah, exactly. good luck with that. But there's there's a lot to get for investors to get their teeth into here, both in terms of the information that's out there and potentially as as, as decent looking investments right now. So uh, excellent, um, Julia. Let's talk about uh, sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the subject of your sector focus this week. Now, you, I mean, you're looking at it in, in the context of consumer goods companies. Um, and I, I guess that's a, a useful place to start because they produce the majority of what we consume. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk us through the, uh, the kind of thesis behind this piece. Yeah, I mean, sustainability is something that is being seen across sectors. But uh, for the sake of the sector focus, decided to um, look specifically at consumer goods companies, especially as uh, Unilever's new chief executive, Alan Jope, was at Davos a couple of weeks ago, uh, talking about how there's going to be a seismic change within the industry and that... Did he, uh, friends, did, did he get there by private plane? I... Was he one of the uh, hundreds <laughs> of private planes that rocked up at Davos to talk I mean, about the environment? Yeah, I mean, I haven't <laughs> asked him, but I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. But yeah, it's all talking about how brands are supposed to make uh, kind of the world a better place. And I think this sort of movement hinges on kind of two elements. And the first being a lot of consumers want to buy products that are good for them. They don't, they want things to be more natural, more organic. They kind of know where the ingredients are coming from. And then the other side of it is those products, the production of them aren't bad for the environment. Okay, so this will sound minimal impact. This will sound really great, but not everyone is convinced. No, uh, you, um, found, you found a naysayer who thinks yeah, this is a little more than a sort of marketing exercise. Yeah, one analyst that I spoke to was very adamant that he thinks it's all hogwash, as he said. Hogwash. Uh, yeah, one of the more milder terms that he used in the conversation, but saying uh, yeah, basically it's all a glorified marketing scheme. They just kind of look at the market as it is today and realize that millennials, who tend to be the ones who stereotypically care a lot more about these two sorts of elements are the ones who are really coming into the spending power and so if that's the case clearly these companies need to cater to their demands yeah i mean so i'm not a millennial but are you yeah i guess you are i'm definitely a millennial (laughs) yeah i can never never work out the dates of these things so you're both millennials i mean is this when you go shopping do you care about the environment do you yeah. think, oh, I'm not, not going to buy that because it's got too much plastic around it? Yeah, I mean, I think I've definitely been guilty of if I'm looking at two products and one says, you know, natural and organic, the other one says nothing, and there's not a huge price difference between the two, like, of course I'm going to go for that one. Especially cleaning products and stuff as well, if they're, like, full of chemicals and you can get one that's a similar price that isn't, that's still effective. I must admit... I think I'm definitely, I'm probably, judging by the looks on your faces right now, the one that... This no, 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 I, I would to. agree. I just questioned, there's things like, I guess, like, uh, I'm thinking of Unilever and I don't know shampoo and stuff and, and all the plastic that that's, that's kind of sold in. How how do you get rid of that and like how much difference is there between these products? Yeah, that exactly. Are suspo- uh, supposedly sustainable. Yeah, that was one thing the analyst was talking about as well. Especially like you know you can say that this uh, you know cleaning product is you know zero carbon footprint and when it goes back down the drain it's not going to be bad for the environment but at the same time what packaging did it come in well this is, is interesting plastic is it recycled well this least? this is quite interesting because there is this big backlash against plastic and plastic is in so much of what we we buy whether it's food or, or you know cleaning products or you know personal care products the bp 
actually came out this week and said something quite controversial. So they publish every year uh, their energy outlook, I think it's called. It's a huge document. And they came out and said, this is all very well and good. But actually, if you stop using plastic, what, what's the alternative? And there's every, every chance that that will actually do more harm to the environment than the plastic itself, in terms of the energy used to produce it and transport it. Mm-hmm. Plastic is, is lightweight and easy to transport. Glass bottles, not so much. Mm-hmm. So it's quite difficult. Yeah, and another difficult element to it as well is that, I mean, you can say that things are all natural or made with natural ingredients or something like that, but... At the same time, some of the regulations around that are a bit looser. It's kind of you can stick it on the outside of the package and, I don't know, Just charge be a bit, a bit of a woolly term sometimes. Charge a bit more for it? Yeah, true. I mean, this is quite interesting as well because, you know, the, the whole millennial debate is that millennials don't have enough money to spend on this kind of stuff. You know, everything's very tight. Saving that, saving away, you know, screwing stuff away, what, what's left over a, a deposit. Uh, but at the same time, this group also wants to spend large amounts of money on you know, more environmentally friendly organic products. There seems to be a little bit of a mismatch in that that argument. That's true. And perhaps maybe from the consumer goods, like the producer's point of view, it's that may be the case now, but they think perhaps later down the line that that spending power will increase. And so if you're going to start targeting these future customers, you should probably just start doing it now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, there is something to be said for this, I have to say. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a sceptic. I, I do think, you know, companies should behave better. And uh, I think it's something you wrote about a while back, Emma, in a, a tip you wrote on a company called Impacts Asset Management. Yeah. Um, which is uh, an investment management firm that, that uh, runs a number of funds. Yeah, it's that, ESG that in investing, yeah. ESG being environmental social, social and governance, governance. Yeah. Um, and it's done really well so the tips done really well the funds are doing really well and I, and I guess there's there is a school of thought that if companies behave well uh, you know if they don't produce massive externalities that, that are bad for the environment or society and they are and they are well run in terms of their governance then they will do better and impact seems to kind of bear that out yeah, I mean, uh, the big thing with impacts as well is that um, if you look at kind of compare them to other asset managers at the moment and you see the kind of, you know, that a lot of asset managers are incurring, you know, massive outflows, they've continued to gain net new money, basically. So it's definitely the demand there for ESG investing um, is definitely growing, I think. Yeah, and uh, I mean, this is institutional money that, that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, about, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you can you can also invest, obviously, as a, as a retail investor too. But um, absolutely, I think I think one of their funds on our top one hundred list. Yeah, so you yeah, can, you can buy it. So you can. But I think again, like if you if you had the choice between an ESG investor. Uh, investment uh, company, uh, you know, one that wasn't. Why wouldn't you invest your money with that? Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. I mean, there, there was once a school of thought, and I'm, I'm I'm not sure kind of where it came from, but that that you had to sacrifice returns to to invest in a, an ethical manner. Um, but the numbers don't really support that, particularly when yeah, you look exactly. At, you, you look at impacts. Um, and one one company you mentioned in this piece, uh, Julia, is Reckitt Benkiser. Now. You know, they, they make some of the most brutal cleaning products out there. You know, Silit Bang. I've never really thought of that as, <laughs> as environmentally friendly. But, no, um, not. But, but they're kind of shifting the, the way they do things to uh, generally be a better company. Yeah, they're kind of two shifts, really. Um, as the company as a whole is going through this transformation from you kind of your standard consumer goods company to a specifically health and hygiene company, as they said. So uh, towards the end of 2017, they sold off their like any of their food division and they bought this company called Mead Johnson Nutrition, which does uh, infant formulas and nutrition products and such. 
And so that's kind of the first element of that shift. And then, again, as you say, a lot of those cleaning products, not particularly environmentally friendly. And I think they're quite aware of that and are trying, they've, when you speak to them or you go on their website, they have some quite clear objectives, such as reducing the carbon footprints of when they're manufacturing these products. And uh, yeah, having, it already uh, actually has met its target of having zero waste landfills. That's it was three uh, years ahead of the target, so yeah. Which is quite important. Of, yeah, it's, it's, it's an important. ongoing process, but that's definitely a big achievement so far. Is it, I mean, is it translating into a good financial performance? I guess would be the, you know, for our readers, that's the, that's the million dollar question. Yeah, I mean, they had uh, full year results last week. And yeah, it, judging by those, it seems to be right on track. I mean, at the interims, prior to that, uh, this uh, infant nutrition business had done so well, they increased their forecast for revenue and then for the full year. And now the full year results have come out, they hit the top end of that. So at this point, it seems like it's a transition that's paying off. Absolutely. Uh, I noticed in your piece that uh, the the chief exec is leaving. Yeah, unfortunate timing considering the uh, yeah transition and the integration of uh, Mead Johnson into the rest of the business. But yeah. They're searching for a successor, and... Do we have any idea who that might be, or is this all... No, they've been tightly put about it so far. But yeah. But yeah, no. that doesn't seem to have spooked the shares uh, necessarily at this point. Well, I mean, they... Yeah, performance has been good. Yeah, they're big. I mean, they have weakened over the last half of 2018, but what didn't? What didn't? Uh, bouncing back now. Um, let's just go back to the feature. Um, yeah, one of the things that, that uh, that's often talked about is palm oil. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you Readers, do uh, you, love to email me after I write about anything to do with palm oil and what about the orangutans and the effect on the environment? So, <laughs> uh, Robert used to get sent um, various literature about orangutans. He used yeah. to come mm-hmm. palm oil, and uh, yeah, it, it is one of those industries or sub industries that mm. that has a pretty horrible reputation. Yeah, and they, I mean, and it, but ask, it's in everything. Yeah, it's true. Palm oil is still yeah, it's it's in everything, and they. Again, have good intentions. It's kind of hard to pick apart where, you know, saying that you've joined this uh, roundtable on sustainable palm oil, that that's immediately going to transition into a better impact on the environment. Mm. But I guess it's a step in the right direction. But one thing that I've always kind of, find of, kind of find baffling about something like an MP Evans is that, you know, they'll have the results, you'll speak to them on the phone, you get the email and stuff, and then, like, the next week, this massive package, like, paper package will arrive in the mail with the same thing you talked about to them last week, which, I mean, if they're talking about there's no deforestation and they're all good for the environment and stuff, it just seems to be a departure, even just little things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, palm oil is, uh, as I say, it's in a lot of things. People like Unilever have, or people, companies like companies like Unilever have... have reduced their their use of this or they're trying to uh you know reformulate products to to, to use less yeah. of this this material or alternative oils and such yeah i mean do we do we see any signs that that you know that's having an impact on the, some of the palm oil players out there um whenever i cover palm oil results it's not necessarily that's their biggest concern though it is evident it's more it's such a cyclical business that their results really depend on production that year. Even weather. Just things like the weather. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I covered these for a bit, and weather was always uh, yeah, and even a big like, unknown. Yeah, and even like the price of alternative oils and stuff too. Like thing like if uh, like so- soybean oil is significantly cheaper than if these companies that are making these products have palm oil can kind of substitute some of that in. They will do it. Mm. And so, yeah, as of the last set of uh, results from the palm oil companies, it kind of seemed to be like that cycle was going towards the downturn. So. We're 
staying away from those at the moment. I think that's quite sensible. You can play the uh, ESG theme through things like companies themselves or, or through, uh, through some of the funds out there, which, uh, which have uh, been good performers. Impacts is, uh, is an interesting company to look at. Do we still like those shares? Yes. We've got yeah, definitely. Still. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a secular trend. And I think, uh, I think one that, uh, that, that we should pay attention to. I don't think it's, uh, it's uh, bad to, uh, to be thinking about the environment as an investor these days or, uh, or other things that are good for society. Um, thank you very much, uh, Julia. Thank you, Emma. Um, there's lots and lots in the magazine uh, this week. We haven't talked about the, uh, the cover feature, uh, which is uh, our annual look at the commercial property market, the property forecast. It's written by Jonas Crosted and Mark Robinson. There's, uh, there's lots and lots of, uh, of information there on, on, on what the post-Brexit prospects are for commercial property. Lots of worries over that sector, um, given the, the worries about a potential exodus from the UK, should we uh, leave or, on no-deal terms. Um, actually, those, those worries sort of uh, had a bit of a, uh, a standard bearer this week in the form of Honda, which you mentioned in, on the, uh, the Seven Days page, which is closing a factory. This, this kind of ties into the environmental theme as well. And it's lots of speculation this is a Brexit-related decision, but, but they themselves have said it's to do with uh, electric vehicles and uh, the shift from diesel, which I think is mentioned in the sector focus as well, that uh, that was a very big problem for the automotive industry, the, uh, the environmental concerns there. So have a look at that feature. We've got James Norrington's uh, 10 Asset Portfolio as the second feature. He hasn't updated that for a while. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting look at asset allocation and uh, how to put that into practice. We've got Algie Hall's uh, NEF stock screen looking at cheap cyclical shares. Company results starting to, to ratchet up as, uh, as the uh, flurry of banking uh, reports uh, attest to. But there's lots more apart from that. Lots of miners reporting at the moment. And next week looks pretty horrific. It's going to be fun. Lots of the uh, lots of the news section. Sainsbury's a uh, bit of a bit of a nightmare there for them with the uh, CMA's likely blocking of their takeover or merger with ASDA. Alex Newman has looked at the Vale Dam collapse and uh, some of the implications for the mining sector there. And plus five hundred. And what's going on there, Emma? That's just a disaster. It is <laughs> a company. Disaster. Yeah. What, what, I mean, did we did we see this coming? Well, I mean, fundamentally, no, because they just they, they wrote in their two thousand and seven two thousand and seventeen accounts that they didn't make any losses from clients benefiting from trading, and then came out with a statement saying, "Oh, actually, that shouldn't we shouldn't have included the word losses. We didn't mean that." So it's a mis misreporting. Well, exactly. Yeah. Oh dear, I'm seeing far too much of this uh, lately. Um, anyway, we've got them on a sale now, and yeah. uh, and I think that's uh, probably sensible. Anyway, lots more in the magazine this week. Thank you, Julia, and thank you, Emma, and thank you all for listening. Uh, pick up the magazine and all good news agents. The property forecast, the outlook for real estate in 2019, and we'll be back next week. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 